Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Hey, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Last week, we brought you part one of our conversation with General John Baker and Butch Bracknell. And this week, part two. You guys have both touched upon resume. And one of the things that General Baker's your comments are about how these transition services are not necessarily cut out for lawyers. And one of the things I struggle with is, you know, you read or say, tell us things that you achieve. Tell us where you have made a difference. And one of the things I struggle with as I look back as a staff judge advocate is we're enablers, right? We provide advice. A lot of it is attorney-client privilege. And to be able to say that my advice necessarily resulted in this success. When you present your resume, how do you present your time as a staff judge advocate and all those things that you just took as a matter of course in enabling your commander and others to achieve their mission? So, Tom, some of it kind of depends on the sort of job that you're applying for because you need you really do need to tailor your, your resume for the position. But as you ask the question, you almost answered the question. The bullet that you put under staff judge advocate for Guantanamo Bay, you enabled the decision maker to make financial and logistics and, and that sort of thing. So I think that resumes, like as a general rule, are important only if they're not good. Because I think that what gets you the job at the end of the day is the interview. And what gets you the interview is the net. Because there's just so many different versions of a resume. I just think that as long as your resume generally looks good, the interview and the network is going to get you there. And the way you make your resume generally good is you get a whole bunch of your friends' resumes and then you write your own bullets. One of the jobs I applied for was a legal advisor. And so I, and I, I don't have my resume up, but I just kind of used action verbs and decisions that the commander made at the end of the day. My legal advice helped the senior executive decide X. I'm not sure that's what you want, but that's what I got. The one takeaway that I had from a couple people that I've interviewed is there's a tendency to overthink the resume. Amen. I, think, I think Steve Barney said it best. He said, just tell your story. And the second point you hit on is everyone has that resume and says, this is the one that works. It worked for them. And so you really have to figure out what is going to work for you. Butch, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to chime in on that, but if you do, go ahead. I do. Even eight years removed from active duty, the hair is going up on the back of my neck because I'm about to say I'm going to disagree with the general. But I don't really disagree with anything General Baker just said. I have a slightly different take on it. I don't have one resume. I have four resumes. And then those four resumes, depending on the type of job that I'm pursuing, I have optimized each one of those resumes for that type of job. Algorithms are a thing and machine searching are a thing. And so you need to have your resume. A general purpose resume probably is not going to fit the bill when you're going pursuing a specific type of job. You need to have your job have search terms in it, which match the PD. 
or are analogous or synonymous with terms that are in the position description that you're of the job that you're chasing there. So, for example, in the job that I'm in now at NATO, I practice in several different areas, but I focus my practice in public procurement, business relationships, some of which are for pay, some of which are collaborative. They're basically pay your own way relationships and that kind of thing with industry, research labs, corporate corporations, and universities. And so if I'm pursuing a job like that, like say I was chasing a job at one of the FFRDCs or a think tank or something like that, I would want to focus on the collaborative type relationships. And I'd want to use terms that optimize them would cause the computer to reach in and say, this is a resume you should look at, whereas a general resume may not do that. Another is data protection and privacy. I was talking about a little while ago. I have a resume that's optimized for data protection and privacy. I use that one if I'm applying for a job that is data protection and privacy, either exclusive or really heavily focused. So I do think you do need to massage your resume and make sure that you know what it is you're saying, because half of your communication is with computers. And you, and you got to get past the computer in some cases in order to even be seen by a human who might look at your resume and go, yeah, this is a person we might want to invest in. Hey, Butch, we didn't disagree with each other. I, you know, super tailored every resume for every job that I applied for. I think that we do have a tendency to overthink the process. And there's been a bunch of people that have backgrounds similar to us that have said things well. So I just kind of I borrowed from them. But absolutely, you've got to put time, effort, and energy into tailoring each resume in each kind of major category of job. You kind of have your senior executive job and just a lawyer job. Each one needs to be tailored. Hey, Tom, can I offer three thoughts in case we run out of time and that I want to make sure that we get? Sure. The first is that everybody needs a transition buddy. I had Devin Young, one of my best friends. He and I were transitioning at about the same time, looking at completely different jobs. But it, he was somebody I'd call him or he'd call me or we'd text or whatever. Just kind of, It was just somebody that was there going through the process at the same time. And that leads to the second point. You're going to have down days. I don't want to pump myself up too much, but for 30 years, I was always kind of on the up and up and succeeded at everything I did. And then all of a sudden you get the phone call that, hey, you're not getting this job or you go three weeks and nobody contacts you about anything. And there's self-doubt and you know you have some down days. And so having someone to talk about that with is super important. And then the last point, and I talked a little bit about this, but you have to ask for help. There are so many people out there that just can't wait to help you. And you have to look outside your service. It's really interesting to me that I've talked to a bunch of Marines and they've been super helpful, but a whole bunch of Army general officers who I just happen to be in the Judge Advocate Association board with have been just incredibly gracious with their time. And they never met me really before I reached out to them and said, Hey, do you have 10 minutes to talk? And that 10 minutes, probably at some point for a couple of them, it turned into 10 hours. So you have to ask for help. So those are my three points I wanted to make sure that I made. Again, that gets back to one of the motivations for this podcast was we kind of run with our tribes. And I really am trying to break down that barrier so that we open it up to Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, because we're all going through the same experience. I should add Coast Guard and Space Force in there too, but we're all going through the same experience. We all have the same general issue, if you will, of going through of, hey, I'm leaving something behind from 20 to 30 years that I've done. I've been pretty good at it. And now I'm trying to break into another culture and another experience. 
I kind of sense at the end of the day, it's sort of like going off to, for you guys, the basic school and whatever Navy, you're going to get through it. You are going to end up somewhere on the other side. And I think Butch said this pretty good. It might not be the last job, but you're going to land on your feet. It's just a matter of trying to, you would love to hit a home run that first time, but be prepared that you're not. And that's what we're trying to do here. You guys talk about being prepared for long hiring process. General Baker, you talked about the GS, SES, and, and Butch, you talk about industry not being much better than the government. So your thoughts on that? I'll start just because I have an anecdote. So my son is three years out of college. He's a product design engineer, and he just changed jobs. He applied for a job after Thanksgiving of this year, and three weeks later, he got a new job. I had been looking for a job for a year and I didn't have something. Because of the types of jobs that I was looking at, and a lot of people that are going to be listening to your podcast are looking at, are either government, which take forever. There's senior executive jobs that take a long time and you just have to be patient with yourself. I got called back for a second job interview in November for a job that I applied for in July. It's just a much longer process than I had mentally prepared myself for. You just have to be patient. About five years ago, I got a call from someone who said, hey, we just wanted to regret to inform you that you didn't get the position. And I go, oh, that's too bad. Who is this again? I had, <laughs> it, had been a, it had been a year. It had been a year. It was a government job. And it had been a year. And I was like, all right. Thankfully, I wasn't hanging on the edge of my seat or anything like that. My experience, personal experience with industry is that they're not a lot faster. They're not as agile as everyone makes out. And that may be because if you're trying to, to transition into defense industry, for example, or industry tech, whatever, they're hiring an executive. I think that tech folks maybe who are actual, the actual tech folks, maybe their turnover is a little faster because the question is, do you have skills and experience? Yes, no, blah, blah, blah. But when they're trying to hire a lawyer, they're looking at something more esoteric considerations. The last thing you want is a lawyer who comes in and just doesn't fit the team or he's a square peg in a round hole or just doesn't fit and doesn't have the right philosophy for being an attorney for that organization or whatever. So I do think they're a little more cautious about hiring maybe lawyers. I don't know about others, maybe business strategy and finance. Maybe it's the same way because they're investing in someone that is actually going to help run the organization and their risk profile is higher because they can't afford to make a mistake. But that's kind of my experience with that. While we're on, if I could make two other points, I wanted to reiterate what General Baker just said about JAGs from other services being super helpful. I, that is absolutely consistent with my own experience. I'm not talking down the help that I've gotten from Marine lawyers, senior Marine lawyers because I have gotten some from those folks. But the Army and Air Force and Navy JAGs that I've talked to over time have been nothing short of amazing as well. For example, before I left active duty, I was pursuing a position with BAE Systems. And Scott Black, the former Army JAG three-star, I think he was the first three-star when, when the Jags moved from two to three-star. I think he was the first one to get the third star. I just cold called him. I mean, I was like, all he can do is say, why are you calling me? But he didn't. He said, I'd love to talk to you about BAE Systems. I'd love to give you some insights on the company and maybe give you help you shape your approach to the interview. He gave me an hour in person, sitting down at an office in Hampton, Virginia, which he happened to be down here on business. He didn't have to do that. He was a three-star and I was a retiring 05. But he was super gracious about it. And I will never forget that, that he was willing to give me that time. So who would I be, I mean, four ranks junior, not giving people that time when they tried to, to ask me for help? 
The last thing that I, I wanted to say is that I took a tack on getting some additional experience that was through some volunteerism. I was a chairman of a police oversight commission in Virginia Beach for two years. And then I was on the city's personnel board, which is essentially a grievance panel. It was like an, a miniature MSPB for four years. And in that time, we, I probably heard in one fashion or another reviewing the actions of city officials and city employees on at least a couple hundred cases. And I am now the vice chairman of the Governor's Commission to investigate the May 31st, 2019 mass shooting in Virginia Beach. I have been pleasantly surprised at how much folks that I'm interviewing with are, are interested in those experiences. My tack has been that these developed skills to, to augment my resume. It's not why I did them. I did them because I believe in them. But there is this corollary benefit kind of to my resume. And, and folks are interested in those experiences. And they take time and effort to, to do. And you just have to be willing to commit some of your sports watching and beer drinking time to doing these other things. And it does takes a little bit of a toll in terms of effort. But it's in my experience, it's been worth it. And I think those those three experiences, for example, have plugged some holes in my resume. They have been less concerned about my lack of employment law experience, for example. If I go, if I'm pursuing a position as an assistant general counsel, jack of all trades, master of none in a company. And they're like, what employment law experience? And I say, no federal, but let me tell you about this personnel board experience where I sat on a grievance panel. And that seems to scratch their itch on that. They're like, okay, you get it. You understand how employment law works and you understand the standards and, and what the remedies are and that kind of thing. And it really, these were things that I took on to sort of help myself out. And I, I think it's paying dividends. I'll let you know within a few months, but I think so. General Baker, you said that you applied for nonprofit and you wrote the nonprofit world is on fire. Tell us a little bit about that. I think it was Mark Warren, retired Army colonel, uh, told me nonprofit doesn't mean not well-paying. The nonprofit world really is exploding. There are a lot of opportunities there for people that want to either provide legal advice to them or that need senior executives leading them. The challenge with breaking into the nonprofit world as a, as a senior JAG is you have to be able to translate the military speak into whatever nonprofit sector that they're leading. And like a lot of other places, they like to promote from within people that have been with them or are supporting them for a long time. But it is really a growth industry. I happen to not succeed looking in the nonprofit world, but I think a large part of that is because I ended up where I really needed to end up, and that's as a federal defender. Can I add something to that? I agree with you 100%. And I think there's a misconception about nonprofits out there. There's some nonprofits out there that have nine-figure balance sheets. They are, there's some nonprofits out there that are absolutely flush with cash and making money. They're not all these impoverished organizations that pay their employees a pittance or something like that. Some of them are really, really professionally run organizations that do really important work. The only difference between a nonprofit and a for-profit is they're not returning any money to shareholders and they're not, or they're not paying ownership. Right. They are returning the money back into the organization. For example, Rand, I was a runner up for a position at Rand less than a year ago. Go take a look at Rand's financials. All right. This is a company. This is a company that can compete with a lot of tech companies and research companies that are out there. And they're a nonprofit. Go take a look at the CEO's salary and then go take a look at the general counsel's salary. It is on par with for-profit ventures. And I agree with General Baker, that it is a place where you can go and thrive. I had a preconceived notion of what a nonprofit was. And then the more I sort of got into perfecting my job search, the more I realized, oh, no, that's, that's not what they are at all. 
foundations, for example, go look at the Rockefeller Foundation and see how much the CEO or the general counsel for the Rockefeller Foundation makes. He's making as much as his peers in for-profit companies. So I agree with you 100% that is a viable line to plumb. How did you do your research on companies or firms or entities that you were interested in? My method got more methodical over time. I went to the internet. I used the heck out of LinkedIn. So I was looking at a position in a company. I found folks that I knew that were second degree connections in LinkedIn. And I said, hey, I'm not asking you for anything. I'm asking you about the company. What's the work environment like? How, is it healthy? Et cetera, et cetera. I was pursuing one position and I talked to folks who were in similar positions in competitor companies. And one company I walked away from because they turned me on to some information about the, this company's prospects and viability for the future. And it looked like frankly, it looks like bankruptcy is in this company's future. And so I said, well, I don't want to get on a boat and then look down and all of a sudden find out there's a hole in the bottom. So you do have to be careful. Any job is not okay. If you're going to hitch your wagon to a horse, you need to make sure the horse is healthy. So you need, you do need to do your research and dig down some of the financials. You can go into Standard & Poor's, Dun Bradstreet, all kinds of things to figure out how financially viable a company is. And then there's a lot of reputational information out there on the internet. Just things like Glassdoor. Does it seem like people really hate working at a place? Or do you hear people say, this place is like my second family. I love it here and so forth. It's gotten more methodical over time, but there's a ton of data sources out there that you just got to go be willing to sort of create this mosaic about the place that you're interested in. Just to follow up, I think that for me, the most important research that I did was really through networking. Any place that I was interested in applying for or had applied to, I was able to find people that worked there or people that knew somebody that worked there and just network my way to talk to people, not the hiring people, but just to kind of get a sense of the organization. And then I also, through the networking, I like a couple of the GS positions that I applied for, I applied for the positions because I knew people in the offices that I liked and was very interested in working with them again. Yet another plug for networking. Moving on, what you recommend publishing. If you want to be perceived as smart, show that you're smart, essentially, is what you wrote. What kind of publications are we necessarily talking about? That's a good question. I've done a couple of peer-reviewed articles over time. They are absolutely for academics because you have to have the time and the availability and a research assistant and all those things. For example, like Mark Nevitt is a publishing machine. And because he's a professor, and that's his job is to publish. If you are trying to do a peer-reviewed piece when you've got a full-time job, it is almost like a second full-time job if you were going to write something of quality. I've written more in the blogosphere and service journals and things like that. I did some publishing when I was a fellow with the Atlantic Council because that was kind of our gig. We were, that's what we were supposed to do is publish short-form pieces on particular strategic or operational issues, sometimes international political issues and so forth. I did it and I liked it. And so I just kept doing it over time. I do think it's a and it's useful, if nothing else, to be known. Quite frankly, I've had a couple that I've used as writing samples, and they've been well-received, I think. When you're a lawyer, it's tough to develop a writing sample sometimes because if you write a 10-page opinion on taking apart some legal issue, that's not yours to disseminate. So sometimes it's tough to find a writing sample that you can share with folks. If you're in litigation and you're writing a motion that's particularly, well, you're a military judge or something like that, and you've written an opinion then you've got a writing sample that you can hand out to folks that's in the public domain. But if you've been an SGA, that's a little bit harder. So I'm, I use them for that purpose as well. One quick point on that. This almost goes back to your resume question. 
I used more of a CV than a resume. I had a publication part of my CV, and then I had a presentation part of my CV. And every class I taught went on that CV because, again, the transition mm-hmm. courses are aimed at like defense industry resumes. If you look at like the jobs that I was looking at, lawyer jobs or government jobs, people want longer resumes. And so one of the ways to do that and to show that you're thoughtful and whatnot is to have a presentation and a publication part of your resume. And I 100% agree with Butch how much time it takes. I'm working with two guys for doing a naval law textbook that we just submitted yesterday. It took us a year to write it. It's a pain. It's just another bullet for you to show the person that's reading your CV that you're a thoughtful person with a lot of experience. Well, guys, looking at the sort of the cheat sheet that you generate, I think we've hit 95, 100% of the points. Is there any closing arguments you have or any thoughts you want to leave the audience? I'll go first. I'll close with our last bullet point. Let's pay it forward. Part of the reason why when I heard about your podcast, Tom, that I really wanted to participate was people were just so helpful to me. I want to return the favor. Like I said, there was nobody that I reached out to that not only agree to help me, but also connect me with somebody else to get more help. So, you know, pay it forward. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I think we have a moral responsibility to do that. We all left law school and then me, I was funded law. So I, I was in the Marine Corps and then I came to law school and then I went back to the Marine Corps. And a lot of my peers from law school went straight down the street to whatever firm. And they started just churning away at their careers. And maybe later they went in-house somewhere, or they went to government or whatever. But they are clicking along, developing their careers while we're out doing something different in the service for our nation. And then when that comes to its end, its natural end, whenever that is, we're a little bit behind the eight ball sometimes when it comes in, in comparison to some of those folks. The, a lot of those folks get out into an area of practice and they become experts at it because that's what they do and they do it really, really well. We in the military sometimes, particularly if you've been, if you were an SJA track person, some folks, are, you know, some folks become litigation experts and that's kind of all they do is litigation and and bully for them. And, and guess what? When they leave the the armed services, they better look for something where they could use their litigation skills because that's the skill they develop. For other of us, where you're an SJA, you're a jack of all trades and a master of maybe a couple, you have got to find a way to translate that into something that folks value outside the armed forces. And you are a little bit at a disadvantage to some of your peers that did not go back to the military or go to the military at all. They've been out there grinding and you are behind them. And so we need to in my view, if we want to if we want to continue to recruit high quality judge advocates at the junior ranks, we need to provide them a path through the service, however long that lasts, whether they get out as captains or majors, or whether they get out as lieutenant colonels, colonels, or generals. But they need to be able to see light at the end of the tunnel that my life doesn't end when I step out of uniform, but rather I can transition to something that continues to be productive and provide for my family, et cetera, et cetera. I think we're at a little bit of a disadvantage there. So we need to help each other as much as we can to make up that ground. And that's why I'm here. That's why I talked to General Baker. I don't know how helpful I was to him. I hope I hope so, at least if nothing else, to be a sounding board. But I talk to lots of folks all the time, and I try to give as much time as I can because I do think it's a moral obligation. Well, gentlemen, I have to tell you that each time I walk away from one of these sessions, I learn something. And I think you are playing it forward. And I can personally say thank you. And I'm sure there's somebody else out there that will hear this that will also benefit from it. So thank you for reaching out and thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts.
Well, Tom, you're welcome. Uh, anybody wants to connect or ask me about my transition thoughts, John Baker, one word, USMC at gmail.com. Same here. I'm on LinkedIn. My email is on the contact. I rarely say no to a contact request on LinkedIn. I've gotten a couple of ones that were uh, clearly originated either in Beijing or Moscow, <laughs> but I say no to those, but all others are welcome to. And then you can see contact information there. I'm agnostic to service. I think that service in the Air Force is, is as valuable as the Navy, as valuable as the Army, as valuable as the Marine Corps and the Space Force and Coast Guard, of course. I would make no discrimination between services or so forth. I'm glad to help and honored to do so. And Tom, thank you for pulling this together. This is something that's missing in this space. We communicate with each other a lot, but the podcast is a way to get a, one message out. Just like your LinkedIn is your resume public-facing resume that can be viewed by thousands of people at once. A podcast is also a way to transmit a message. Instead of a thousand individual conversations, we are talking to a thousand people who might tune into this podcast. Thank you for filling that void. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production. 